We're in a sermon series in which we are, uh, let's see, we're in the third sermon of a series in which we're flying 30,000 feet above the Bible, meaning that we are trying to get a big picture of the biblical storyline by following some major themes, like the theme of exile, restoration, the theme of offspring, for example. These themes that are uh, introduced early in the scriptures, and then we're flying over the top of the scriptures, so to speak, and we're, we're watching how the Bible develops this theme, how the theme uh, came, came to fruition throughout the process of redemptive history. We're looking at how the theme is introduced. I call it the infancy stage. We're looking at how the theme uh, develops as it's wrapped into the promises to Abraham, the adolescence stage of the theme's development. We're watching how the theme then starts to blossom in a, a prototype called the nation of Israel, calling it the teenage years. We're looking at how the theme then comes into its true fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm calling that the manhood stage. And then finally, we're watching how the theme is then applied to the church in light of our union with Christ. I'm calling it the marriage stage. So we've got one theme, five stages that we five stages of redemptive history. And today we're going to zero in, zero in on the theme of uh, fruitful multiplication. Fruitful multiplication, it comes from Genesis 1.28 that John just read. Let me read it to you again. In fact, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Genesis 1.28. I'll give you a second to open those up. Genesis 1.28. It reads like this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, before we get going, uh, uh, we need to see that this theme is tied up with some other themes, because the Bible's storyline is kind of thick, and so it's not surprising that when one theme comes up, it's tied into some other themes. So I, I, I want you to see what's taking place when Adam and Eve, they produce this multitude, be fruitful multiply they have children and the earth is filled with human beings be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and then these human beings are going to what's the word check it out go ahead and look at your look at your look at your text fill the earth and subdue it i want that to stick fill the earth and subdue it humanity is then going to exercise dominion, subdue, dominion, same, same idea. It's not the first time that the notion of dominion has come up in the Bible. John just read a few verses previous to this in verse 26 that God had already told Adam and Eve, or told us at least, that Adam and Eve are going to have dominion over the earth. But I want to listen very careful, very carefully to the way that dominion comes up in verse 26. So bring your eyes up there to verse 26. Listen to this. God said, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness and let them have dominion. Hmm. Usually when people talk about humanity being made in the image of God, they'll say something like, uh, 
God has a mind, will, and emotions, and we're made in his image, so therefore we have a mind, will, and emotions. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. But that's not, that's not what this says. I mean, it, it's true, God has mind, will, and emotions. It's true, we have mind, will, and emotions. And maybe you could even say in some sense, like, yeah, we're kind of created uh, like him in that sense. But that, that's not what this says, what it brings up image of God. First time in the Bible that it's brought up. There's nothing here explicitly, and there's nothing here implicitly that indicates that being made in the image of God has anything to do with us having a mind, a will, and emotions. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Interesting. To be made in the image of God is to be assigned the task of exercising dominion over the world, just like God exercised dominion over the world in the first six days of creation. Remember, before things get put into place, we're told that the earth is without form and void. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And then God does something wonderful. He takes what is formless, and as king of creation, he exercises his royal dominion, and he speaks his world into order over six days of creation. He makes the sky. He assigns the sun and the moon as signs for seasons and days and years. He creates the seas. He creates the air, the land. He sets creatures in them. He brings order into the world. And then he makes man in his image and says, let them now have dominion. And therefore, the context of Genesis makes it clear that the essence of being made in the image of God is this assignment to shine forth, to image forth God's royal dominion over the creation by living our lives in such a way so as to bring healthy order to the world, to bring the world under a reign that points to the fact that God is the one who reigns over the world. God is the king over his kingdom, we're created in his image for the purpose of putting him on display as we engage in the work of subduing the creation and bringing it into alignment with his design. When we exercise dominion, we tell the world a story about a king and a kingdom. That's the assignment that's given to Adam and Eve. And the extent to which they perform that duty is the extent to which they image forth God. And the reign of God, the kingdom of God, is on display as Adam and Eve bring the world to order. And it's with that lens that I want to go back now to verse 28. Because I think we're going to have a better understanding of what's happening when we're told to be fruitful and multiply. God blessed them, verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. What this is saying is that God wants Adam and Eve to have children so that the human race can put God on display by by exercising God-like dominion over the earth. Fill the earth with human beings so that you and your family can demonstrate to the universe what the king is like by the way that you bring order 
into the world. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. It's our image-bearing task. This verse is what theologians refer to as the cultural mandate. Anybody ever heard of that? The cultural mandate? What they mean by that is that the command in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, it's the biblical basis for humanity's cultural responsibilities. The cultural mandate. In other words, God wants us to take the latent potential of this universe and for the glory of God, this is the this is what the cultural mandate is, is. God wants us to take the latent potential of this universe. For the glory of God, we and our children are to bring forth order in the world. Bring forth order in the world and your cultural responsibilities. Produce food. Make products. Invent stuff. Practice medicine. Make music. Travel. Study nature. Create things. Govern the city. Govern the state. Subdue injustice, provide for the poor, decorate your home, build schools, play sports, build armies, advance technology, learn to surf, write a book, plant a tree, recycle, bring order into the world. Exercise caring dominion over this world for the glory of God, the cultural mandate. And it's rooted in our our, uh, image-bearing responsibility. Part of what it means to be human. Now, even though it is only Christians who can have a proper motive. It's only Christians that have the proper motives. It's only Christians that have the proper spiritual state of mind. It's only Christians who have the proper spiritual state of heart in the work of culture making. Even though that's true, there's actually a sense in which, by God's common grace, both believers and unbelievers put on display, put God on display, as we exercise dominion over the earth together with unbelievers to the extent that we're uh, contributing to the production of a healthy, just beautiful and moral society. And when we do that, when we build great cities, when we build great nations, it is to some extent an echo of what we were all assigned to do in the Garden of Eden. Fill the world with people and put God on display by creating a well-ordered, just, and virtuous society. Now, what this means is that when we engage in culture making, all those, don't, when I say culture making, don't just think of painters. Culture making meaning just putting the world into order. When we engage in that, when we go to work Monday morning and we trade stocks and drill teeth and teach students and go grocery shopping, we have the opportunity to image forth God by performing our vocations. Because assuming we're making some positive contribution to society through our vocations, I mean, if you're a drug dealer, then this doesn't really count for you. You're not really bringing the world into order here. Uh, But uh, assuming we're making some sort of positive contribution to society, we're taking part in the task of bringing the creation into order. We are, to some extent, living out our identity of being made in the image of God. We're fulfilling the cultural mandate, and I think it's pretty cool. 
I think it's pretty cool because in some sense, we glorify God by fulfilling our everyday civic and cultural tasks. And you should know, you should know that. You should delight in your God-glorifying task tomorrow morning. So when you go to work tomorrow, in the words of Martin Luther, he says to the shoemaker, make a good shoe, sell it at a good price. Well, actually, he says, make a good shoe, sell it at a fair price. To the glory of God. Pretty cool, isn't it? Brings God glory. Now, having said that, I want to switch gears. Because even though there is some sense in which we can think of our daily cultural responsibilities as the fulfillment of our image-bearing task, I want to suggest that the cultural, that culture-making, the cultural mandate is not ultimately the fulfillment of Genesis 128. That's not the ultimate meaning of Genesis 128. It's a legitimate interpretation. It's legitimate to read that we are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and to conclude that we need to have children and make culture. It's a legitimate interpretation. But it's not the ultimate meaning of this verse. It's not ultimately what this is talking about. Culture making is not the ultimate way of putting God's kingdom reign on display. Having children and making culture, they are good, God-glorifying activities. You should enjoy them. But they are parables of a greater truth. There is a more ultimate way of being fruitful and multiplying than having physical children, and there is a more ultimate way of bringing order to the world than culture making, and therefore there is a more ultimate way of glorifying God as image bearers. And the way we're going to see it is by flying 30,000 feet above the Bible, and we're going to watch how fruitful multiplication unfolds throughout the scriptures and just see what happens. We'll see where this goes. Does it land on culture making? No, not ultimately. Who are these people that multiply and fill the earth and put God's reign on display, and how do they do it? Well, we've already seen the, the theme in its, in its infancy stages. Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And, and then it pops up again, wouldn't you know it, in the flood account. So Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. There it is again, verbatim. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And what it demonstrates is, is that God's plan for filling the earth with image bearers, it's being passed on now through the covenant community. Just like uh, the, the, the promise of a coming offspring uh, was running through the covenant community. It went from uh, Adam to Seth to Noah same thing is happening here. Many redemptive, all, all the, all the, well, what am I going to say, all? Uh, many themes, and perhaps all of them, I didn't put this in my notes, that's why I'm struggling to say this the right way. The rest of the redemptive things that, themes that we've looked at so far, you'll notice that they're running through the covenant. Adam. Seth to Abraham, and as you might expect, the theme of fruitful multiplication 
gets picked up once again in the promises to Abraham. Just like, you, just like we, we thought that it, it might. And this brings us to the next notable stage in redemptive history. The covenant promises to Abraham. And therefore the theme is now entered into what I'm calling its adolescence. It's going to start to develop a little bit more as fruitful multiplication gets placed within the covenant community and the promises to Abraham. Humanity's responsibility to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. As those who are called to image forth the reign of God to the world. It's going to be wrapped in promises to Abraham, Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So there's the dominion theme as well. You've got fruitful Abraham and his descendants, and there's going to be dominion exercised by those descendants. Kings, nations. Genesis 22:17 again to Abraham God says I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies so again you've got Abraham's line is going to multiply and there's going to be dominion they will have victory over their enemies the themes are running side by side as it unfolds in the promises to Abraham. God's going to make Abraham fruitful. He's going to have children. That multitude will lead to nations and royalty and victory over the enemies of God. There will be kings that come forth and fill the earth. You see that the same promise follows down to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Genesis 35, 10-12. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Okay, so this theme of fruitful multiplication is not only in Abraham's line, uh, not only given to Abraham, it's not only in his line, we see it in Jacob's life, and Jacob is going to have his name changed to Israel, and it becomes clear that the promises are going to be embedded now in the nation of Israel. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were called to fill the earth with children, And together with them, they're going to put God on display by subduing the creation. That program is is now folded into the line of Abraham. And now it's going to develop in a particular land. That was what what, uh, God just promised Jacob. Be fruitful, multiply. There's going to be all these kings that come from your line and I'm going to put you in a land. What you might expect to take place as the theme unfolds is that these people, this rising nation of Israel, are going to put the reign of God on display in that land. The nation that God, the, the, the nation in that land will be a little picture of the kingdom of God. And the way that God is going to be put on display in that land is by being fruitful, multiplying, filling the land, and subduing it. They're going to put the land in order. They're going to exercise dominion over that land. So this is precisely what happens in the nation of Israel. And it brings us to the teenage years, the next major phase 
of redemptive history. And this is where we find that fruitful multiplication now blossoms into this prototypical form. The nation of Israel. A prototypical picture of fulfillment. Listen to how, okay, I'm going to read to you a passage from Nehemiah 9. Listen to the, for the themes of fruitful multiplication and listen for the themes of dominion. And I want you to see how it happens in the land of Israel as the, as the kingdom is being uh, displayed now through these image bearers in this land. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 23. You multiplied their children. God multiplies Israel. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued, there it is, you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hands with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So here you have Israel multiplying in the land of Israel. Canaan, God subdues the inhabitants of that land by giving them into the hands of the Israelites. And it's a picture of God's kingdom reign over that land. A fulfillment of what was commanded in the garden. Only it's just a picture at at the level of of a nation. Happening at the national level. See something very similar in 1 Kings chapter 4. Listen again for fruitful multiplication of Israelites and dominion. 1 Kings 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. He had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates. So there's the prototype. There's the prototype. God's people, they've been fruitful. They multiplied in the land of Israel. Now they're under Solomon's leadership and they have subdued the enemies of God. Things are in their proper order. The kingdom of God is on display in the nation of Israel. And God is glorified in Israel because in the words of King David, 1 Chronicles 22:18, the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. So there it is. There's a picture of the fulfillment of of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's just a prototype. Because actually the earth is not filled. It's just the land. It's just the land of Canaan. And not only that, the land doesn't remain subdued at all. In fact, total chaos breaks out in the promised land because Israel herself refuses to live under the reign of God. Israel rejects the law of God, refuses to live under God's law, and so God dispossesses them. They're sent out of the land into exile, which means that uh, Israel was not actually the final fulfillment of Genesis 1.28. The creation is still waiting for that final fulfillment of humanity's assignment to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So how's it going to happen? 
How's this going to be? How's this going to be fulfilled? Everybody's kind of waiting for it. You can clearly see it's unfolding from Adam and, and then to Noah and then to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and then it falls flat. Well, how's it going to happen? Who's going to subdue the earth? Who's going to exercise dominion in this world in a way that puts God's kingdom reign on display? Who's going to secure victory over the enemies of God? Who's going to set the world in its proper order? Who's going to multiply nations upon nations of descendants and fill not just the land of Israel, but the entire earth with God-glorifying image-bearing human beings who would take part in a mission of subduing the world under the reign of God and setting things in the proper order. Who's going to fulfill the calling of God's image-bearer? And it brings us to the next stage of redemptive history, the manhood stage, I'm calling it, when the theme is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as I do every... every uh, week with this series when we get to this point i want to remind you that when jesus brings redemptive history to its fulfillment he does it in ways that you just would never expect it's fulfilled in ways that are are like oh wow i didn't see that coming the dominion of jesus is not going to unfold the way that we thought that it would and the multiplication of his offspring will not take place in the way that we imagined that it would in order to to kind of demonstrate this i want to go back to isaiah And listen to the way that Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 7. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. You can if you want to. Isaiah 53, verse 7 and verse 10. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now, that doesn't sound like dominion. It does not sound like this guy is exercising dominion over anything. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It just does not sound like dominion. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And this part is so cool. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be cut off from the land of the living. And yet, when he makes an offering for guilt, when he gives his own life to pay for the guilt of your sin and mine, he's going to have offspring. Through his death, he will bring forth life. Through his death, he will bring forth children. What we find in the New Testament is that together with these children, Jesus spreads the reign of God throughout the world. Jesus is going to exercise his God-given authority as the second Adam, and he is going to put the world in its proper order. He's going to exercise dominion as the Son of God, made in the image of God for the purpose of putting the reign of God on display, Jesus is going to conquer the nations. But he will do it in a way that is so shocking that you would never see it coming. So flip with me, if you will, Matthew 28. 
Matthew chapter 28. How is Jesus going to conquer the nations? How is Jesus going to exercise his dominion? Matthew 28. We're going to look at the way in which fruitful multiplication now applies to the church, which means we're coming to the marriage stage of the themes development and this is where we're connected to the person and the work of Jesus Christ and therefore what he has done has implications for our lives and what I want you to see here is the dominion of Jesus and the multiplication of his people wrapped into one single mission the dominion of Jesus and the multiplication of his offspring wrapped into one single mission Matthew chapter 28 I'm going to start reading in verse 18 And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the king. The king of kings. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. His royal dominion over the universe has no bounds. His kingly reign is putting the universal sovereignty of his Father on display. Jesus is manifesting the kingdom of God on the earth. And as the second Adam, Jesus is going to now exercise his dominion over the earth. He's going to bring order to the creation. But it doesn't happen through culture making, does it? kingdom of God does not consist in culture making as good and God honoring as it is. That's not how Jesus is going to advance his rule. The kingdom of God consists in disciple making. The kingdom of God consists in disciple making. This is how Jesus conquers the nation. This is how he brings the world under his rule. This is how he multiplies the children of God. And therefore, it is through the making of disciples that we most fully engage in our assignment to be fruitful and to multiply and to bear God's image by bringing the world under the reign of God. When we're invested in the work of being disciples, when we're invested in the work of making disciples of Jesus Christ, we are living under the rule of Christ and we become the instruments through which the rule of Christ is being demonstrated On the earth. As we share the gospel message, baptizing believers, teaching the nations to trust in and obey Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is unleashed on planet earth. Hearts are subdued underneath his rule through the preaching of the gospel. The world is filled with the children of God as we are born again by the Holy Spirit. And things are the way that they are intended to be. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth 
and subdue it by making disciples. So there are two points of application to this. Uh, We Christians, we have a couple of really important responsibilities that flow from Genesis 1.28. Both of them legitimate. They're very applicable. First, let's recognize the dignified calling to be culture makers. Together with our neighbors in our society, let's recognize that it is a legitimate way of glorifying God as those who bear his image. It's important to know that God does intend for us to leave the church, to live a life in the world that draws a picture of God's caring reign over the world by the way that we bring order and beauty and benefit to our families and our neighbors and our cities and our countries through our daily vocations. Our callings to be parents, and that is a vocation, by the way, in the truest sense of the word. It's a calling. Your calling to be a parent, homemakers, landscapers, car dealers, our callings to create and recreate and contribute to our homes and to our civic society. They are meaningful and dignified exercises in the calling to bear the image of God. We have, from God, very genuinely, a cultural mandate. Show the world what God is like by the way that you live in society. God gets glory from our lives when we go to work and contribute to the, contribute to the world. God gets glory when our homes grow and function with order and beauty. When we have children and and we feed them and we get sufficient rest and we learn how to work hard together and we play often together. God gets glory from that. God gets glory when we help those who are in need. God gets glory when our cities and our nations are governed justly. God gets glory when human beings bring the world into order. It tells a story about, about who God is. And as Christians, we recognize that all of those cultural activities, uh, they are most fully honoring to God when they're pursued from a heart of faith-filled worship of Jesus Christ. Our daily assignments, they matter. They matter because they tell a story about a king. They tell a story about a kingdom. So of all people, we Christians should be living our lives out there in ways that reflect how things ought to be to some, to some extent to the extent that we can in, in a world that is, that is cursed and rebe- rebelling against every attempt that we make to tell the story out there. The way you do your research, the way you conduct your classroom, the way you handle your money, it's all, it's all telling a story about who God is. And therefore, we have this responsibility to live well out there. As a, as a testimony to the way that things ought to be, to show the world that, that this is what the reign of God over my heart produces in my life and through the work of these hands. That's the first responsibility that Genesis 128 gives to us, the, the cultural mandate for the glory of God. But as we just saw, the work that we do in culture is not the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 128. My civic vocation is not the way, uh, not the means of bringing God's reign on the earth. My, my home and my job and my city, they are merely shadows. They're signposts that point to something else. Cultural, cultural transformation is not actually the installation of the kingdom of God. And it brings us then to our second responsibility that is drawn from Genesis 128. 
Let's recognize that the ultimate work of multiplying and the ultimate work of subduing the earth and bringing order to the world takes place as we are making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's through the ministry of the gospel that we are most fully engaged in the ultimate mission for which we are created. It's through the ministry of the gospel that we are most fully living out our image-bearing calling to subdue the creation. Because it's through the ministry of the gospel that the reign of Jesus breaks into the world as he takes his throne on the hearts of people. It's through the ministry of the gospel that the children of God are multiplying and filling the earth. This is the ultimate task for which we are made. It is the ultimate mission given to humanity. It is the ultimate way in which we bear the image of God. Make disciples of all nations. I mean, do you want to know who you are? You want to know who you really are? You want to know what your purpose is? You want to know what your ultimate mission is as a human being on planet Earth? Do you want to know what it is? You are made to be a disciple-making disciple of the glorious God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why God made you. That's why you exist. That's why your heart beats. You are made to be a disciple who makes disciples. It is the mission of God. It is the mission of the church. It's the mission of your life. So be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it by making disciples with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what that means? It means that what we're doing right here, right now, today, by gathering to worship Jesus and disciple one another, it is the fulfillment of the mission of God. This very moment we are being we are being and we are making disciples. The church of Jesus Christ comes together to serve one another and feast on the glory of Jesus. We're being brought under his reign as his word is proclaimed and as we declare his his glory through our song. We are servants of his reign as we minister and love one another. We're putting him on display through our lives as we minister the gospel to one another. This is what the mission intends to produce. Gospel saturated God-worshipping disciples making disciples, also known as the church. The church is the goal of the mission of God. But you know what else it means? It means that when we leave here today, we have a mission that goes beyond our calling to be culture makers. When we enter into our various callings this week, those callings that give the world a little taste of the reign of God, when we go into our God-glorifying vocations, we have to remember that those vocations are not themselves the ultimate mission of our lives. They're not the ultimate display of God's reign. Yes, it glorifies God when you punch the clock tomorrow morning, but there's a reason God sent you there that goes beyond the civic contribution itself. God has placed us in a variety of homes, in a variety of neighborhoods, in a variety of vocations throughout the region, not only so that we might give the world a glimpse of our God through the performance of our daily callings, but also so that we might prayerfully seek ways to season those good works 
with testimony about the Savior who lovingly reigns over us. God has sent us into the world not only to be doers of good works, but witnesses to the Lord who strengthens us to do the work because of the glories of his grace and mercy. You must testify to the glory of his grace and his mercy. We are sent in not only to make culture, but to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Let me, before I pray, just, just keep, keep your eyes closed. Let me, let me encourage you to ask God right now what, what is one step you can take Toward being a disciple maker or a better disciple maker. I mean, if there's one thing we ought to be very, very good at, or at least work hard to get better at, it is the making of disciples. How does what, what's one step you can take in that direction? I'm just going to give you a, a few seconds to pray over that, and then I'm going to pray for us. He bore the curse for us. He went to he went to the chair is to be disciple makers. We know that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that one day your dominion will manifest itself in a reign that it will be undeniable. We also know that right now the way that you conquer the nations is by offering amnesty to rebels. The way that you're conquering nations is by displaying your wonderful sovereign reign through the proclamation of the grace revealed in the gospel. And so we want to be those who declare that gospel. We want to have salty lives. We want to be culture makers. We want to give ourselves to the work of bringing order into our lives, order into our world. Uh, we, want to, we want to show what you're like by the way that we live out there in the world, but we also want to we also want to have salty words, Lord. We want to testify. Would you show us how to do that? Would you show us how to take the next step? Would you show us how to build the relationships and, and have the kinds of conversations and pursue and pursue our friends as we hear the murmurs of their hearts coming out that they're when, that they're in need, that they're looking, that they're hungry, that they're lost. God, would you help us to spot that? Would you help us to move toward them? in tactful ways, in humble ways, but in loving ways that, 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 that communicate to them with words, I know what you're looking for. And would you use us to declare that gospel through conversations and times of prayer with others. Use us to be ministers of that gospel and display how glorious you are through this church body. in Jesus' name.